Okay, let's take our Bibles out. But we're going to do our reading from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in a swaddling cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So looking at Christmas and thinking about it and reading through all the gospel accounts of it and things this week and just trying to get kind of a big picture and a focus on what, what Christmas is all about. Christmas is obviously, if you're going to boil it down simple, God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the simplicity of Christmas. There's a lot of other elements that are involved in it as well. There's a whole narrative and a storyline. And so what we want to focus on here a little bit today is we want to focus on some of the things that really matter, some of the elements that make Christmas Christmas. And as we consider those elements of Christmas, the first one that I'd like to point out is mystery. Christmas is a time of mystery. As you look at all these amazing things that happen around this event, it is definitely a mysterious event. Now, it's not the kind of mystery that we see in a lot of our Christmas movies and things today. In a lot of our Christmas movies, there has been a lot of mythology added on top of the Christmas events. And there has been some stories and things that are make-believe, that are fictional, that have been added to our Christmas throughout time. And it seems that, you know, when you watch those movies and shows and stuff with a slant toward that or read the books, the idea is that you believe just because you believe in so many of those. I know in some of the movies that I've seen, there comes a time where somebody's asking questions, well, what about this and what about that and what about this detail? At a point, maybe a parent or somebody else says, you know what, sometimes believing something just means you, you just believe it. That's very different than the mystery that surrounds the true Christmas. That's very different than what we're called to believe. You know, we're never called in the Bible to just believe just because you need to believe. 
We're actually given proof. We're actually given testimony that, that testifies to the truth, to the reality of the events that happened. In fact, when you look at the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so Luke states his purpose in writing this book right there. Luke is writing within the first generation after Christ. We know this uh, Gospel would have come early because we know that the book of Acts is his second book that he writes to the same guy, Theophilus, who he's trying to educate in these things about Christ and the apostles. And the book of Acts ends seemingly unfinished because it follows the ministry of Peter, follows the ministry of Paul. In Paul's ministry, he's sitting in jail, but he's not been martyred. And the book of Acts comes to an end. So he finishes it before the apostle Paul dies. And Luke is his first book that he wrote, so it's even earlier than the book of Acts. So we're talking about a book that was written in the 50s to early 60s. Christ dies in eighty thirty. And so, this is uh, still within the lifetime of people that were there and experienced it. Just as Luke says in his introduction here, he says, I've been following it for a long time, and I've been following it closely. I've been taking these things down, and I've been interviewing eyewitnesses, people that were actually there that saw these events, and I'm putting them all down in an order so that you can understand what actually happened among us, so that you can know that these things are absolutely true. You see, he's not saying, you know what, sometimes you just, you just have to believe. He's saying, look, eyewitnesses saw this. I know these people. They're people of integrity. We can trust them. This is what happened. I've dug into it. I've looked into it. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul when he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he says, look, over 500 people saw him at one time and they're still alive. A few of them have died. Most of them are still alive. In other words, you can check this out. You can go talk to them yourself. That's what Luke is doing here as well. He's saying, I've talked to all the people that have been there. I've looked into these things. Can you imagine? He's probably talked to Mary. Where else would he have got the details of the birth of Christ? He gives more details about the birth of Christ than any of the other Gospel writers. Probably got it right from Mary. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1-3, through he says in the first book, O Theophilus, referring to the book of Luke, he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Just as He records at the end of His Gospel of Luke the proof that Christ had to go through to show His disciples that He was resurrected from the dead. Now He refers to that again. And He says, Christ by many proofs showed Himself to be alive again after He rose again from the dead. Peter would write in his epistle, he says, "...for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty." For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with Him on that holy mountain. He just gives one example of when Christ is transfigured before them on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, but Peter saying, look, we didn't follow cleverly devised stories. We didn't follow myths. We were there. We heard it. We saw it. Well, this was our experience. 
John does the same thing in 1 John. He says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, the life was manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father." and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Peter, John, Luke, they all point to the fact that all these testimonies, all these things, he says, these weren't weren't myths. These aren't stories. These isn't somebody's clever scheme. We were there. We saw it. And these people were willing to pay for the fact that they saw it with their life. Because they would end up losing their lives and all they would have to do to save their life is to deny it. But they refused to deny it at huge cost, so they could hand to us an eyewitness account of the things that most assuredly happened among them. Now that's of huge importance. And the reasons it's of, it's of huge importance is because the elements of this first Christmas, the events that take place, are supernatural. They're amazing. They're the kind of amazing that I don't really wouldn't believe unless a number of people that had actually seen it and that I trusted their testimony would tell me that these things were true. But that's exactly what we're dealing with here this morning as we look at the mystery that surrounded that first Christmas. What are the things that we see that are mysterious? Well, first of all, we see it was prophesied beforehand. You know, this is something that was that was in the works from the foundation of the world. This is something that God was letting us know a little bit by a little bit all through the Old Testament. He was letting us know those things beforehand. Matthew Chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Isaiah was prophesying 700 years before Christ was born. So 700 plus years before Christ was born, God was already starting to give the promises. He was prophesying the things that were going to happen. Matthew also records another prophecy. It says in Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, the wise men show up in Jerusalem and they say, hey, where's the one that's born king of the Jews? And so they got the scribes in there, the Bible scholars, and he says, where's the one that's supposed to be born king of the Jews? Where is he supposed to be born? And then they quote this, because in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And so we see there's also Isaiah 9.6 and other places throughout the Old Testament where the coming of the Messiah, God's Son, was prophesied and different details about that coming. And that's, that's what we're seeing. And when we look at the birth of Christ is we're seeing God hundreds of years before giving this message little bit by little bit before to the prophets telling us this is what's going to come. They didn't even understand it. They didn't know. In First Peter, in his epistle, he describes the prophets as studying their own prophecies, trying to figure out what in the world it was talking about. Because it wasn't their words, it was God's. And so this is a mysterious thing. All these prophecies start to come together and be fulfilled in this one person. Well, not not only was it prophesied beforehand, it was also announced by angels. And it needed to be. Because it's an amazing event that God is becoming man. That this eternal God is going to take on flesh and dwell among us. 
That's an amazing event that God would send His Son to be the Savior of this world. And so it's announced by angels. So when you think about it, this happenings around Christmas is going across time, right? Because it goes way back and, and up to the forward. It also spans the spheres because now we have these angels which are spiritual beings coming to announce this arrival of the Son of God. And so it's crossing spheres as well. It's just a lot of amazing things happening. Well, angels show up to who? They show up to Zechariah. Zechariah, the priest, he's going to burn the incense in the temple and they show up to Zechariah and say, you're going to have a son. Your wife, Elizabeth, in her old age and barren, she's going to have a child and it's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. Well, then also the angel comes to Mary and tells Mary, you're going to have a child. Her only question about it is how? How is this going to be? I haven't been with any man and he says, it's going to be the child of God because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And that which is conceived to you will be called the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. There's going to be an angel that's going to show up to Joseph because he needs some heads up on what's going on. Because he finds out Mary's pregnant and he's like, he's a nice guy. He doesn't want to ridicule her. She could even be put to death. He doesn't want anything like that. So he's just going to try to divorce her quietly and move on with his life as best he can. But the angel comes to him and says, what she's telling you is true. Childs of God. Don't be afraid to take her to be your wife. And so he gets on board with it as well. And then finally also the shepherds. Just a bunch of shepherds. Your average working guys doing their job out on the field in the middle of the night. And here comes this chorus of angels singing. That's amazing. But you know what? An amazing thing has happened. God's Son is coming into the world. It deserves some amazing treatment. It needs to be announced in an amazing way. And it is. Not everybody gets to see it. But then the shepherds go in and they tell everybody that they see after that about this amazing uh, message that was delivered by these angels. And so we have this birth that was prophesied hundreds of years beforehand, announced by angels. But then also we see that it's declared in the stars. Even the creation itself is proclaiming the birth of this son. Now, I don't know exactly what's happening here. I've, I've seen there's a, there's a movie out called The Star of Bethlehem. It's very interesting. I don't know if that's the star that they were following or if it's something miraculous that God did in the sky just for that moment. Not totally sure. Either way, it's amazing. If God put something in that sky to lead them right to that house at that moment, that's amazing. If it was following a star that was already on orbit to get there, that also is amazing. As that means back at the creation of the world, when God was putting it all together, He put it together so that this one star would pass this one planet right at this one time when the child was born. Either way, it's amazing. Either it's, a, either it's just a blatant miracle of God done right at that moment, or it's something that God built right into the fabric of creation to proclaim the coming of His Son at the moment that it would come. And the three wise men, who are those guys? Best I can tell is there are people that were probably had a heritage that influenced back to Daniel. Remember when Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got carried off into captivity over into Babylon because God was with them and they learned fast and those kinds of things. They got made to, to go through this schooling and to teach. Well, it appears that probably the Magi's history dates back to that time. And so people outside of Israel have been watching for and being guided by that star. It's just a mysterious and amazing event. And then not only that, but we also have them being testified to in the temple. The first one, of course, would be Zechariah when he's in there burning incense and the angel comes to him and tells him, you're going to have a son. 
And Zechariah's like, how do I know that's true? He's skeptical. And they said, all right, since you didn't believe me, this is how you know it's true. You're not going to be able to speak until the day your son's born. And then you're going to name him John. Well, when his son was finally born, and Zechariah writes down his name is John, his tongue is loosed, and he's able to speak. But he has prophesied, this is your son that's going to go before Christ. He's going to be that one that prepares the path. Well, not only that, but we have these other two after Jesus was born. When they go to present Jesus for his circumcision and stuff, they take him to the temple, and there's two people there at the temple. One's an old guy named Simeon. And Simeon had been promised by God that you will not die until you see the Messiah. And they bring in the baby, and Simeon sees the baby, and he says, I can die in peace now, because I've got to see the salvation of Israel. And that's what they all testify to is the salvation that would come through this baby. And then there's Anna. She's this lady. She'd been married for seven years. Her husband died. She's a widow from then on. She's 80-some years old, living in the temple, fasting and praying, just serving God. And she comes out and gets to see it and begins telling everybody about the redemption of Israel, the salvation of Israel that God's providing through this one baby. And so I don't know, when I read through those, I look and I think, well... On the world, all these seemingly disconnected people. Isaiah is 700 years ago. Micah is really 500 years ago plus. And then these two older people in the temple and, and the shepherds that are on the hillside. All these seemingly disconnected people are all being brought in together. These magi that have been traveling for who knows how long from over where they came from, from the east. All of them kind of come together. It's almost like God's got this big, like He's an orchestra director. Right? And He's pointing, okay, now it's time for you to chime in. <laughs> it's time for you to get involved. And it's just amazing set of events that takes place because it's an amazing birth. God is becoming a man. So not only is there mystery, but there's also majesty. There's majesty because we see inclination of who He is. That He's the wise men come looking for the one who's born King of the Jews. Some of the ways that we see that is through uh, this promised forerunner. In Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, "...and He will turn many..." of the children of Israel to the Lord their God is talking about John the Baptist. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see, before God tells Mary she's going to have a baby or Joseph or any of them, before any of that, he goes to Zechariah and he says, your wife's going to have a son and you know who he's going to be? He's not going to be the guy. He's not going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the, the one that gets everything ready for the Messiah. He's, he's the one that's preparing the way. Isaiah talked about him coming. Uh, Malachi talked about him coming. Last book of the Old Testament. They talked about this one that would come and that would prepare this highway through the desert. Prepare this path for the coming one, for the Messiah. That points to majesty. That points to kingliness. And the reason is because that's how kings travel. When a king would travel from one location to another, from one city to another, there was a crew of people out in front of him which were the road workers. And they would go through and any potholes they would fill in and any stones they would kick off onto the shoulder. And they would just make it so it was a nice smooth ride so that when the king is coming to town, he's coming in on a nice smooth road. Easy travel. Well, that's what John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was the one prepping Israel for the king. He was the coming and he's not cleaning the road. He's cleaning the hearts. He's saying, look, the Messiah's coming. I'm not him, but he's coming after me. So get ready. And he started baptizing people out in the river as a sign of their repentance and pointing to this coming Savior. So he's the one preparing the way for the king. So we see majesty in that. Not only that, but in the promises. We see a promised succession. 
Remember when we were studying through the Old Testament a little bit and we talked a lot about the covenants. The covenant to Abraham that God would make him into a great person and a great family and a great nation. And from that nation would come this one. It was through him that all the world would be blessed. We also talked about the covenant of David. David was a man after God's own heart and God made a covenant with David that a descendant of yours will sit on your throne throughout all time. And that's what it's referring to in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. It says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And so we see this promised succession as well. We see the guy going before him to pave the way. We see that he's got a right to the throne of David. In fact, uh, Joseph will kind of follow the lineage uh, his lineage will be followed through Matthew's Gospel. Mary's will be followed through Luke's Gospel. In both ways, he's got a, a right to be the successor on the throne because he comes from the family of David. But then also, we see a visit from these wise men. Because these guys come and say, where's the one born King of the Jews? So that points to the majesty of Christ as well. So what do we see when we look at Christmas or experience Christmas? We experience mystery. There's just amazing events that we try to get our minds around. And because it's an amazing person that we're trying to get our minds around. He's majestic because he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But then also he is divinity. We see mystery, we see majesty, and we see divinity. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, it says, An angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is his answer to Mary's question. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. A lot of the terms we already read in a passage where it says, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. They've been told, you're going to name him Jesus, which means Jehovah saves, the name of God saves. And so all these names, all these things point to the same thing as the salvation that's be provided for us through Christ. But he is the Son of God. He's the Son of the Most High. He is Jehovah saving us. In John chapter 1, in his dealing with Christmas and the coming of Christ. We see it right off the bat in verses 1 and 2 that John says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Notice, it points right off the bat to the eternal nature of this one that would be born. Because it says, In the beginning, He was. He already existed. And He existed as God because He was with God and He was God. And so he very clearly is deity. And then when you get up to verse 14, it says, and the Word that it was talking about, the Word that was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh. You see, He was God in the beginning. He was already existing. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. He just already was because He's the Eternal One. He already was in the beginning and then He became flesh when He was conceived in the womb. He took on humanity. And then how does it refer to Him at the very end of the passage here in verse 18? It says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. Now, who's that talking about? Obviously. He says, The only God who's at the Father's side. So it's not the Father. is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Very clearly referring to Jesus as God. As deity. And so Jesus is... God and He is man. But we see that His divinity expressed in who He is. Everything from His names and His titles to what He would be referred to as being the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh. 
took on humanity. Lastly, we also see that an element of Christmas is humility. Because this is the place where it all intersects. This is where God becomes man. This is when the, the immortal takes on mortality so that he can experience death on our behalf. This is the place where God is not afraid to get down and get his hands dirty and to walk in our shoes, to experience our pains and our sorrows. In fact, probably more than what we experience. And he would take that on to take our sin and our penalty, our payment upon himself. It's expressed in Philippians in chapter 2 where he deals with it somewhat theologically and also somewhat devotionally. Because what he's doing here in this passage is he's been he's telling the, the Philippians that they need to be of the same mind as Christ was. He said you need to be you need to treat other people like Christ treats you. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he starts this, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, he's writing to the to the Philippians, and some of them are having some squabbles back and forth. It seems like there's a little bit of friction here and there when you read different parts of the book. And he's writing to him, and he says, you know, look, you need to stop that. You need to stop. If each of you stops putting their own concerns first and look, not out, look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others, and be willing to put their interests above your own interests, then these problems will go away. And he's saying, look, that's what you need to do. You know what you need to do? You need to do what Christ did. What did Christ do? We were down here in need. We were uh, suffering because of our sin. And He was up in glory in the splendors of heaven with no pain and no sorrow and no negative experiences. He was living in that glory. And what did He do? God the Father says, I want you to go down there. And He did not cling to what's His. You know, you know when you see a little kid with a, maybe a new, a new gift, Christmas is coming up, probably going to witness this a little bit. you got a kid with a new toy or an excited toy and another kid comes and picks it up and they grab a hold of that and they're like, no, no, no. Cling into that. That's exactly what He's saying. He said Christ did not grasp what He had. Living in the splendors of heaven in unbroken fellowship with the Father, He did not cling to that and say, not me. I'm not giving this up. Rather, he let go. And he was willing, the creator of the world, to become a baby that needed to be taken care of in every way possible. And then he would grow up and he would suffer and he would face rejection and ridicule. And even, remember the unbroken fellowship he had with the Father? Even the Father would have to turn his back on him for a time as he bore our sins in his own body on that tree. And he would die. The creator of the world letting some human being spit on him as he's going to the cross. Allowing them to mock him and pull the hair out of his face and whip him with whips and 
all of that. He humbled himself, would go through all of that. You know how hard that would be not to just incinerate that guy with a spoken word? Or those people? He didn't do any of that. He humbled himself under all of that. Why? For you and for me. And in Philippians, he's telling them, look, that's what you need to do. So as we experience Christmas this year, what do we see? We see mystery. It's an amazing time of year because it was an amazing event. And as we reflect back on all the different things that happened that first Christmas to make that first Christmas happen, it is a, it is a mysterious time. It's a magical time. His majesty it points to the kingliness of Christ, the position of Christ. And we're looking forward to Him coming back in that majesty. It points to His divinity, that He's so much more than just a man. He is man, but He's also God. And His humility. And so as we experience Christmas this year, let us focus on those things, those elements. The simplicity of God sending His Son to be the Savior of the world and the majestic way that He took care of making that happen.